The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Kevin Jacobson began his working life in a chartered accountant's practice. An adept piano player, he devoted all his spare moments to music. In 1957, he and his brother Colin joined with John Bogle, Laurie Irwin and Dave Bridge to form the KJ Quintet. Eventually, they would change their name to Cold Joy and the Joy Boys, adding younger brother Keith. These early days as a musician saw Jacobson's first forays into a career that would propel him to the heights of entrepreneurial endeavour. Kevin Jacobson would become one of the most successful showmen to bring global acts and theatre to Australian audiences. In the 70s and 80s, Kevin Jacobson toured artists that included Debbie Reynolds, Demis Roussos, Joe Cocker and Billy Joel. The 90s saw him bring the three tenors, Barbara Streisand and the Bee Gees to our shores, playing to capacity houses and breaking many records. Kevin soon started producing theatrical shows and arena spectaculars. An abundance of entertainment saw Aida, Turandot and The Man from Snowy River play in vast auditoriums. Musical theatre productions saw Kevin as the first promoter outside the USA to be invited by the Disney organisation to present the stage version of Beauty and the Beast. He toured the Lerner and Lowe classic fair Camelot, starring Irish stage and screen star Richard Harris. In 2001, he produced Shout, The Legend of the Wild One, an all-Australian production based on the life of Jacobson's old friend, Johnny O'Keefe. It toured Australia to record crowds winning Mo and Greenroom Awards and an aria for Best Cast Album. He found global success with Dirty Dancing, the classic story on stage, an adaptation of the much-loved Hollywood movie. Any account of Australian show business would not be complete without recording the significant contribution of Kevin Jacobson. The Stages podcast was honoured to sit down with the legendary impresario and to reflect on his fascinating journey making and presenting a vast range of entertainments. Here's my conversation with entertainment legend Mr Kevin Jacobson. It could be age, it could be stress, 
It could be, I never did have a good one anyway. It could be, I was so flippant. I was so flippant that people used to say, "Who was? What was that last two you did too?" And I'd say, "Oh, wait a minute." Um, uh, I think, shit, I remember waving goodbye at the airport. <laughs> I remember we lost two million. I remember we picked up three or whatever. Well, there's been so many experiences crammed into your lifetime. Yeah, that, um, that's, I'm that's sure a good they, excuse. They all begin to blur. <laughs> it's a blur, yes. Life's a blur. <laughs> well, Kevin Jacobson, many many folk, when I told them that I was going to sit down and talk to you, got very excited and, and were delighted that, that you're doing this. So, so thank you um, very much. Thank you. You're, you're obviously a much admired and respected respected elder of our of our entertainment industry. Elder, yes. yes. Do you, okay. Do you, do, you, do you happily embrace that term? Um, well, I suppose I am an elder. Yes. Well, as, as, as far as you know, um, <laughs> an older, wiser person in in our community who who has immense knowledge and um, experience. Yes. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Now, Kevin, your many years as a producer, it would seem um, an essential attitude to have as a producer would be to, to trust your gut. Um, are you a risk taker? Um, yes, that, I'm a risk taker. That would be um, but, essential, um, wouldn't it? Well, when I, we decided, when I was piano player with the Joy Boys, and I, made, I said to Colin, my brother, Look, uh, I thought I was a promoter. I didn't realise we were so hot. A phone call to a radio station saying we're bringing Cold Joy and the Joy Boys to play Festival Hall Brisbane, and they wow, great, and the way they'd go, and we'd sell out. I thought this was promoting. <laughs> um, when I decided, uh, I said to Colin, look, I think uh, we're in the business now, and I'd spoken to... Um, the manager of Bobby Rydell, um, Frankie somebody, and uh, Frankie, Frank Day, Frankie Day, and he said, what are you going to do after all this? This is where we're on, when we were on stage. And uh, I said, what do you mean? We've had three number one records, we've got this, we've got that, and I said, we're very well established in the music business, and I said, we'll be playing for years. And he said, oh no, let me tell you the demographics of what was going to happen to you. And uh, it sounded pretty grim like uh, people at this age and that age will in five years will be that age and they'll be married that age and blah blah and if you haven't picked up a younger ones and etc so he said I'm looking after Bobby in other ways for his future um, when I think about it now he was uh, he was right because there's very few a lot of times have changed and management strategies change very few artists that um, that we can name uh, that uh, well there's a lot that we can name that's no longer what they were and that's the cyclical business I suppose of um, the entertainment business but um, I was um, decided we decided that I'd go into promoting and when you talk about gut feeling the first gut feeling we had we were a bit country music because in those days we used to get up early and listen to the country music radio stations. Uh, radio station. And um, there was a guy called Slim Whitman who had a, a famous record called uh, Indian Love Call. Um, Am I calling you? You know. And we thought, wow, let's bring out Slim Whitman. So we line up Slim Whitman, I forget how, but uh, he comes out. and But 
during my so-called publicity, I'd ring the radio station and say, we're bringing out Slim Whitman, who'd be playing the Horton Pavilion. Who? Slim Whitman. Oh, yeah, yeah, Papa David. No, no, not Slim. Dusty Slim Whitman. <laughs> oh, yeah, what does he do? Well, I thought, wow, okay, well, and of course we lost. We lost 2,000 pounds, which was a disaster. Our next gut feeling was Don Gibson, a prolific country music writer who, in our opinion, we knew everybody's going out and having fun. We knew it's been a blue, blue day. We knew sea of heartbreak. And in the country field, particularly in the United States, he was like a genius. We brought out Don Gibson. And uh, we had, I shouldn't use the word mature to that degree in various forms of music being played by radio. Um, when we, um, Don Gibson, uh, the hood in particular, he said, where's my money? And I said, well, wait a minute, you haven't worked yet, you haven't performed yet. He said, no, I don't perform without my money. And we had no money. So I had to go up to Alf Fryer, who ran the Horton Pavilion, and say, Alf, can I have some money out of the box office? This guy won't work, won't get on stage <laughs> without paying. So we paid Don Gibson, but we only had about a 1,000 in the audience. It seated 4,500. Um, so we lost on Don Gibson. So we were tossing up, well, is this a good gig or not? Is this a good idea, this business? Then, for some reason, we got, um, I forget the details, but Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens had um, uh, Everything is Beautiful, and he had uh, Guitars and, and um, uh, he had the A-Rab, and he had these comedy... Well, we had the same problem. I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing you know, A-Rab, the A-Rab, Sheikah, the Burnin' said, don't you know that? And I'm talking to the radio guys. No. <coughs> so we... Um, um, anyway, so we brought out Ray Stevens, but I didn't have the money. I was short $5,000, and I rang uh, um, uh, Reg Grundy. I don't know why. I don't know why my association with him at the time. I forget. And Reg said, yeah, I'll put up the five grand for you. Well, I said, we'll do it 50-50. So we lost five grand. No, we lost 10 grand. And, of course, I, owed, I thought I owed Reg five grand. And I felt so guilty about this. Later on, I made up for it because when I had the rights to 30-odd years to run the Sydney Entertainment Centre, I put his company in as 25% shareholder and they made about half a million a year for about 25 years. But during Ray Stevens' as Ginty, just as a little aside, where it's had killed a beach and Max, my general manager, had the great idea. Look, Ahab, the Arab's the big hit. Let's get a camel down here, get a photo of Ray on the camel. So we brought, got picked up Ray at the hotel for a shot, see, for what publicity shot at the Gilda Beach. And he said, the, he said, what's with the camel, man? And, Ray, and Max said, well, you've got to get on the camel. He said, man, I just write about it. I, I, I can't ride a camel. <laughs> yeah, we talked him into it. Ray got on the camel. The photographers started to set up and the bloody camel took off along St Kilda Beach with Ray Stevens bouncing, bouncing, bouncing till the cat bounced him off into the water. So Ray had a white shark skin suit on and that was the end of that. And um, But that's just a side thing with Ray Stevens. 
plus the fact we lost 10 grand. By the way, I'm still a friend. He's still a friend of mine. And he writes to me quite often. Good to hear. Yeah. It and sounds like you were pretty green when you were starting. Oh, absolutely. So it. that's, oh, I'm getting back to a gut feeling. Yeah, yeah. Then I said to Colin, I remember saying, well, we've got to do research. We've got to find out not what we like, <laughs> what the public might like. See, so from there on in, I became quite a... Um, ardent researcher in all areas, not only what airplay they've had, the percentage of airplay at the time, percentage of albums as to singles, because I singles didn't have, I discovered also singles didn't have the effect of, well, let's go buy a ticket and see whatever. Mm. But um, whoever, I mean. So, um, uh, so I became fairly um, studious on, um, so to speak, on... Um, uh, on researching uh, in all areas. Um, you need to know the territory. Yes. Uh, when we brought out Michael Jackson, by the way, I decided to get a research company uh, to, to give me an idea of Michael Jackson's um, possible um, drawing power. And they came back with 4,000 people Australia wide. So I decided maybe I should continue to trust my own research. <laughs> and I pay them too. <laughs> Those um, early forays with Slim Whitman and uh, etc. I guess country music was the prevalent genre before rock and roll in Australia. It was, yeah. yes, exactly. I mean, um, uh, the combination of country music and all those blues, I mean, blues, country, I, we were right into that, you know. We weren't so much into the English. Um, we, I mean, England, like us, we rode on the back of that, really. Yeah. And Elvis... With Blackboard, uh, was it Blackboard Jungle, a movie? Yeah. We went to see that about four or five times. You, uh, Bill did, Haley. Bill Haley. Yeah. We didn't even have uh, those, what we called, block guitars in those days. And um, my father was a cabinet maker, had a little old shop at Annandale. Um, and we um, copied the block guitars, as we call them, which is normal guitar of today, apart from the acoustic guitar, and uh, carved out the shape drew the shape and um, I remember getting a mathematician in this going to work out the um, theory of the um, frets on them and so on. We made our own guitar, then we made our own speaker boxes that we couldn't carry. Uh, they were so bloody heavy and uh, <laughs> so on. So we, we had to do all that uh, because um, it just wasn't here. I mean, it's hard to realise now. And um, the other thing is um, we were always ahead of radio on what was happening in music. I think everyone is now anyway, although I don't know about nowadays, but um, particularly the press. The press didn't have a clue what was going on in music. I mean, uh, for us to get any publicity, we had to G up a fake um, barbecue with lovely girls hanging around the pool that were hired and set up by the telegraph photographer and so on as a friend. Uh, but there were no music writers and... Uh, no one was educated. No industry at all. No industry, no. no, yeah, yeah. no. Were you a household that had a piano in the living room? At home? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Always a piano? Always. Yeah. Um, we lived East Hills, and at East Hills at that time, there were about um, eight families, and it was like, well, it is, it was a country town. Um, like our school days uh, were spent after hours running in the park, East Hills Park, East Hills Swimming Pool on the, in the Georges River, um, 
clean in those days. Back to clean now, I understand. And um, uh, but there were home parties, house parties, you call them. Yes, uh, practically every week. And there was a piano player lady called, we used to call her Artie Dolly or something, and um, she played what's now what's called stride piano. You know, dun 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 So um, we. Um, <coughs> And I used to think, oh, wow, I'd love to play like that, you know. Uh, but my mother actually pawned her wedding ring uh, and bought a pinola. So we were part of the gang in the uh, weekly, uh, in the, well, I think I know, weekly, it might have been every two weeks, I forget. But they're all adults, and uh, when it was at our house, we had the pinola and Artie Dolly playing songs that we didn't have piano rolls for and um, we were in the bedroom then as kids listening to all the goings on you know of the, so we, but we but my mother was uh, very musical and she played the piano um, and uh, was a good singer I was a, actually pitch perfect to my mother the old man used to sing sharp when he when he impersonated Al Jolson singing Mammy probably half pissed that we didn't realise at the time because <laughs> I used to bung a keg too, you know. That was another thing I remember. Who's going to bung the keg? You know, there was a, apparently some art in bunging a keg and putting the, 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 the plug in, you know, for the tap. And then pouring so, a beer without pour, too much fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so um, we were... Um, the same as when we became Colgy on the Joy Boys. Uh, you know, that built up the back, uh, our land was huge, block of land. We had chooks up the back. We had our own lemon trees, our own, we had all our own food. And um, when I think about it, we grew up with all the food that we grew. But I remember going down and getting broken biscuits because my mother, the, the shopkeeper, the word used to get around, the shopkeeper's got a lot of broken biscuits. and. Uh, which is half the price of normal biscuits, and I remember being said so. So we were hillbillies, really. Yeah. <laughs> we were in, you know. <laughs> so, um, but um, we grew up with music. Yes, we did grow up with music, and um, uh, really from my well, my, my old man too, and my mother's mother used to was a great mouth organ player, a great uh, harmonica player, and the old man's brother, dad's brother George, his name was. One Australia's amateur hour, so I suppose there's, there's music sort of in the DNA there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What about your first piano yeah. teacher? Was that mum? Or? No, my first piano teacher, because there were no churches or whatever, and um, my old man was a um, what do you call it? A discarded Catholic, a Catholic that um, um, walked it, away. What do you call it? He left um, the church. Um, he left the church yeah. because um, of two things. Um, one was his mother was, um, or Billy knows about it, uh, his mother was to become a Catholic to marry his father. She hadn't finished the routine and when she died, the Catholic Church refused to put her in the Catholic cemetery or near her husband or whatever and she had to be put somewhere else or buried somewhere else. That was number one. Number two was, uh, well, not 
one, the old man apparently was going to be an altar boy and discovered a priest with his friend in, uncomp in a compromising position. position, so to speak, and he was horrified and lived with it all his life. He right. only saw a bit of it. Yeah. So he became a Catholic, non a Catholic, Although they say once you're a Catholic or a Catholic, don't they? I don't know. Uh, because I'm a, not, I'm a nothing. I'm a anything comes. <laughs> Black, white, brindle, communist, Catholic, Jew, whatever. <laughs> so um, I'm my piano teacher. So um, her name is Mrs. Flowers. A lovely lady, pure heart. And we went to Sunday school. Uh, this is from the age of about six. And Sunday school was on her front lawn, which was graded because she lived down off the street road. And there were about, as I say, all these members of the family with about eight kids, six kids. And after Sunday school, she'd teach piano. And um, for, to me and Colin. Colin would never practice. Colin was always very lazy. Um, I loved it. And so I learned from her. Now, I wouldn't know what grade because we didn't have grades. But I liked, I loved playing piano. And um, uh, I, I think I could say that most of the, um, most of my piano I sort of learnt myself by studying what they had then, the chef method, I don't know if that's still around. And um, then I discovered uh, chords, because you learn classical music and um, into pop music. And I, so I think I would have, uh, I think I, credit myself with mostly teaching myself after I don't know how long she taught me it would have been from would have been about four years I expect learning um, the basics and some, yes, some technique yeah, yes and then you relied on a very good ear yeah I think so yes yeah, yeah. do but, you still still play piano or yes yeah apart from a little bit of arthritis in the hand there my problem is I can't span an octave anymore because of my arthritis arthritic thumb which is a bit of a Bucket because I've got to learn how to play. You know, I'm not very good anymore. Right. Not that I think I was ever brilliant. You know, I mean, uh, I, I was I was good at blues and I was good at chords and uh, and Jerry Lee Lewis taught me quite a lot of his method. Well, I read that um, you used to stand up when you played. Oh yeah. Yeah. You never sat down. No. Oh, I sat down when I was when I did a can't see. I, I was only fifteen and a half. And I played cricket. We all played sport every day. It was just sport and music. We had a great life, you know. <clears throat> so we were playing cricket. And um, I was uh, about 15 and a half because my birthday's in July. was in the January holidays. So um, a guy called Happy Preston, Athol Preston, spin bowler, um, kid, uh, said he would have to do something to go to work. I said, where do you work? He said... I work in a chartered accountant's office. And I said, oh, yeah. Didn't even know what that meant, right? Then I remember another game. He said, Christmas time comes, and he said, they're looking for some kid to run messages. Would you like to... So I go down to Martin Place, to this place. Town was like a big deal, right? The city. <laughs> like, ooh, ah, you know, so... But you get the bus uh, in or the train in? Train in yeah. from East Stills. It ran right. every two hours yeah. to East Stills. Because East Stills had stopped. The train didn't go through. That was this one. So we could hear the rattlers come in and squeeze to a, screech to a halt and then off. And then we knew then the driver had to hang, hang up his tools, get round the 
go to the other end, whether it be four carriages or six carriages, we even knew that. And then he'd have a yarn with the station master. It was, so it was time for us to leave home when we heard the train screeching to a halt to run up and jump on the train. Um, and um, I was sorting out letters in those days, correspondence, and I think back they were dividends uh, that our that the company, the the accountants company, I, I discovered they were public accounts. I didn't know the difference, chartered accounts, public accounts. And um, I'd sort out the mail, city, suburban, country, um, international or whatever, and take it over the GPO after sorting them out. And the big deal was I'd put them in the appropriate boxes, right, the GPO. Then I had the, then I, they said, we're going to Angus and Coote, a famous jewellery store in George Street. And I said, what do we do? He said, you're, you're the auditor with me. So I didn't know what it was, so they gave me a green pin, pen, and they'd call out numbers and I'd tick them and I thought, wow, this is a currency. <laughs> you know? Then the, the big deal was, uh, at the end of my five weeks, the, uh, the um, partner, Jeff Rattley, said, we're looking for a, uh, a, a, a person to indenture. Now in those days you had to pay to be a lawyer or you're indentured one way or the other. I forget, I don't know the reality of it, but um, he said we need someone to go to New Guinea to the Bulalo gold dredging fields um, with a, a senior accountant to audit and you'll be away for about four weeks. If you'd like to, we'll take you on and uh, as an uh, uh, indentured um, accountant. Like an apprenticeship, I guess. An apprenticeship, yeah, yes. Yeah. I went home to the old man, I said, I think I'll leave school and become an accountant. And I remember my mother piping up, no, you don't, you're going back to school. You're only in third year. That's... I said, well, I've done the intermediate certificate. I did really well there, but no, no, so a little argument there, you know. And the old man said, listen, son, learn a trade. He said, all this accountancy stuff, he said, forget about that, learn a trade. He was right, really, when you think about it, right? <laughs> Trades, try and get a tradesman. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, <coughs> I went to New Guinea at the age of 16 and I learned pidgin English, dispeller back along Sydney and um, uh, whilst I was there uh, someone, Kuka uh, Kukas, K-U-K-U-K-U-K-U tribe had killed a patrol officer and eaten him. Uh, so I, I had the uh, option which I took up of going to this certain tribe which was not the actual tribe where the eating, where the ceremony took part uh, but uh, um, it was uh, also to find some uh, orchid that had never been classified. So we went up to the mountains uh, with um, native guides, <coughs> stopped overnight in a hut. It was about 20 feet off the ground on stilts. For the, I mean, crawling up, I couldn't do it nowadays, crawling up this um, so-called ladder, you know. And the um, next day, um, five o'clock in the morning, we head out looking for this orchid. And the chief, who'd been um, given bags of shillings, which were called shillings, were they called shillings? They, because they, I think they were marks, because New Guinea was under German control at one time. So uh, thus a lot of German words uh, in the New Guinea language. Right. Uh, uh, called us back, 
with all this, oh, yeah, back and forth with our guide saying, we've got to get out of here. He's decided the, the, the orchid belongs to them, not us. It's not white man's orchids. And get out or we, we'll call these natives back and we'll be left in the bloody jungle. So we come back and that was the end of that. But the following day they brought in the cooker-cookers, which were nine, all rope leg, leg roped, uh, and they've little people, um, like pygmy type people, and the um, there were also there was a ply mill there called Clinky Pine, and ply mill making Clinky Pine, and there was something like a couple of hundred other uh, New Guinea from Mommings, Sepix, uh, and all various Islanders and so on working there, and they all disappeared because of the fear of the cooker-cookers. So it was quite an experience. So I decided, came back and I decided, yes, I'll be the accountant. This is really good stuff, right? <laughs> so I did my accountancy. The age of 20... Um, <clears throat> but I'd, I could... There was no TAFE. There was no TAFE. And uh, I don't know why I didn't think of university. We never thought of university. But I, I played piano. I was underage, and I'd sneak in. My first gig was at Liverpool. They probably don't know this, at the Colonial or Colonside pub. And I'd sneak in the back door and put my head down and play Saturday afternoons, you know, get money for that. Then I'd get to Liverpool, I'd to catch a, had a briefcase full of music. I'd go from East Hills to Sydenham and from Sydenham, which is long, you know, out to Liverpool and back. And so I earned money. Were you good with your money then as a kid? Were you able to save? and? No. No? No, no, I just earned the money to pay for my Metropolitan Business College. When I was 22, um, years of age, I think, uh, we, uh, about there, we um, uh, were playing, I put a band together. No, before that, uh, we played rugby league too, of course, and uh, after the um, game, the rugby league, East Hills Rugby League, of which my, my father was responsible for getting up after many, many years of visitation to the Canterbury-Bankstown League uh, headquarters. We got a plaque. He's got a plaque in the park around there, crediting him with it. Um, we, um, we used to... Um, he'd go... We, we'd play the game, and after the game, we'd take the bus back to the park, our own park, where we played, our own home team. Then everyone would go home, shower and shave or whatever, whatever, and that night there'd be a dance. So they said, well, why don't you play at the dance? And I said, well, I can't play it by own, my own, so I've got a sax player and a drummer. And we had a piano, <laughs> drums and sax, <laughs> and that was it. And then I, then I found a guy called Scraper Brown who played the piano accordion, so I put him in. So. That's when I first started playing public. Then I put a proper band together and played for weddings, parties, bar mitzvahs that I didn't know what it was all about. Was this um, the, the KJ Quintet? No. Oh, uh, yeah. Then became the KJ Quintet right. Right. or the Quartet, depending on the... How many were playing that night? Yeah, dep uh, yeah. <laughs> or, or what the wages were. Uh, we used to... I remember I used to just find out from the union what the musicians' rates were. That's what we charged. So and we got this gig at... Um, um, we well that we became qu quite um, proficient musés. Or uh, I say I often say to Billy, my wife, I can't believe I used to jump up on stage and conduct weddings. What do I know about weddings? And uh, or, or 
21st birthdays and we'd call on this and call on that. I mean, wonder where that came from. I mean, some people are so scared to get on stage. Well, I, I think, think as a kid we have no fear, do we? We'll get up and have a go at anything. Yeah, for, yeah probably, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, we were... Um, well, it's called Join the Joy Boys. Um, we... Uh, uh, it's KJ Quintet. We played in many places like that. And we used to do about three gigs a week. When I look at my old diary, which I still have, with the pound notes on it, <laughs> the pound insignia, no dollar. And um, we um, were playing at Maruba Junction Hotel, which they call the Maruba Junction Lounge. And kids start to line up, line up, line up, because we were playing then the sort of music which, as you mentioned, was a crossover in a way to, like, Marty Robbins, uh, I remember her white sports coat and the pink carnation, right? And and I never felt more like singing Sing the blues. blues. Guy Mitchell and um, Teresa Brewer. One, two, and then rock. Dee, 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 one, two. You know, that tickly, click jazz? Yeah. So it was, to me, that was like creeping into, I call it, I mean, the... Uh, developing into rock. So we were into all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, I suppose, in a way, and I was always, I think wrongly overemphasised, you know, we've got to get that offbeat, got to get that offbeat. I mean, an onbeat's just as good if it's played properly, of course. And, of course, Blackboard Jungle changed everything. I remember talking to Cliff Richard about the same thing, you know. So it happened in England. And um, Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley, but um, so we're playing Maruba Junction Lounge, combining a bit of um, what I call the white sports coat era, uh, so to speak, uh, with rock and roll. And the kids were lined up, lined up, lined up. A promoter called Bill McColl was a friend of a girl called Nancy Little that later became Fiona McCallum on TUE as a psyche. You know, you'd ring up and say, I was born on a mountain track and blah, blah, blah. And she, says, she used to say, oh, well, you're going to live a long life and the pain in your back, darling, that's just this. That's nothing to worry about. And anyway, so Fiona was one of our fans that came to the... And she brought along this guy, Bill McCall, who was a promoter. He promoted in the jazz era, or as they call it, jazz, Port Jackson Jazz Band, um, Gee, what are some of those names? Um, I used to go and see. I used to go and see all the music shows, so I must have uh, been interested. Um, at the Trocadero in the Sydney Town Hall, so Bill McCall was a promoter. Anyway, so Bill McCall came to our um, our um, show with uh, gig at, uh, and said, "Oh, look, I've got a show. I'm calling it Jazzarama," and. Uh, he said, I've got this guy called Johnny O'Keefe on the show. I hear he's popular and we'd like you on the show. Um, and we've got Johnny Face, Johnny Rubberface Craig, a comedian, and he rattled off. And it was at um, Manly Embassy Theatre. So this is our big concert, our first concert. So after he'd left, Fiona... Nancy, later Fiona, says, oh, you can't be the KJ Quintet. I said, yeah, I agree. We're a, we're a rock and roll band. This is the clairvoyant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
She said, you have to think. She said, look, he spreads so much joy. Why don't you call yourself uh, the Joy Boys? And I said, no, well, we want Colin up front. So it has to be like Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys and uh, what well, was later, Cliff Richard, the Shadows, blah, 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 Dion and the Belmonts, you know what I mean? And um, so I, I said, well, we could call it Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. Oh, that's good. So it was C-O-L-J-O-Y and the Joy Boys. Now, that's what we decided on. So we ring up Bill McColl. She rings Bill McColl and says, OK, the band you've just seen, the name of it, because he didn't have a clue, he just thought we were good, you know, put us on this show. Um, it's Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. So I'm driving home with Colin to East Hills from Maroubra. And I said, Colin, now bringing into account there was a different attitude then as we grew up with, with to gay people. We, we thought all gay people would come out like with a lip wrist, which as we know is not so. I said to Colin, going home, hey Colin, we can't be the Joy Boys. I said, in rock and roll? I said, Jesus. I said, they expect us to come out waving, hi there, we're the Joy Boys. I said, we've got to change it. And they said, we'll call ourselves the Playmates or the Playboys or something. So we decided we can't be the Joy Boys, Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. And um, I rang Bill McCall and I said, the next morning, I said, we can't be Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. I said, we want to be... Cold Jay and the Playmates or Cold Joy and the Playboys. He said, it's too late. He said, I went back. You've been all night printing posters. I've already had them up and distributed. So that's how I became Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. And it stuck. Now, I, I don't remember why we put the E on Joy because originally it was J-O-Y. Because remember, she said, oh, you spread all this joy. joy. So we did the, um, the gig at Manly Embassy Theatre. Um... And I remember he had us for about four weeks in a row. We used to travel to Manly from East Hills. On the back of a truck, we would sing outside the theatre with rigged up sound um, to advertise his show. And we did the show. We painted our shoes with white paint, glossy white paint that cracked. That bloody cracks in our white shoes. We had purple pants and my wife made red shirts for everybody. So we had red shirts, or was it the other way around? No, purple shirts, red pants, and white shoes. <laughs> Doesn't matter what order, it's still <laughs> quite a clash of colours, isn't it? <laughs> we had Elvis purple, Elvis Presley purple. Right. I don't know, what, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, that was casual, because later on, of course, all of us, used to go to Andy Ellis in Pitt Street, Taylor. We used to have tailored suits. When you look at, when you think of nowadays, we went on, including the Beatles, you see Beatles in their suits and ties. Yeah. We'd be playing rock and roll in suits and ties, tailored suits and ties. Can you imagine that? And we always had to have two suits each. Cost us a bloody fortune in suits. And, and Andy had, Andy captured the market. Before you even open your mouth. Yeah. It costs a bit of money. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, you went on to work at the Tommy Steele show as a curtain raiser oh. there. Now, the, the manager of the um, Manly Embassy Theatre, a guy called Mr Tinkler, 
I know his son, Linton, uh, also managed the, I think it was the Capitol at the time, which was a cinema, and said he got the Tommy Steele story, and that it's not long enough, movie. Oh, it was a film, it wasn't a live performance from no, Tommy Steele. Huh? No, we play the first half of the show, and, and um, Tommy Steele will be there, and blah, 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 so I remember, um, so we did. We played the first half before the movie. Because a lot of people went home after the bloody music. The movie, there's not many left in the cinema to watch the movie. I, I remember we took Tommy Steele home. And, uh, I mean, by the way, Tommy's a Sir Tommy nowadays. Sir Tommy, yeah. Sir Tommy, and he's a, a quite a star on uh, West End. I mean, he's... But, and the first of the sort of English pop stars, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. He had a, a song called... Uh, Little White Bull. Yeah, Little White Bull. And another one called Half a Sixpence or something. Yeah, well, he was in that musical. Yeah. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, once upon a time I had a little white ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lee Gordon Big Show. Okay, so um, Bill McCall's brother, John McCall, was a fundraiser for Bankstown Hospital. I reckon. We should have a plaque at Bankstown Hospital. We, he said, I've got the Capitol Theatre, uh, Hall, Bankstown. You could come play rock and roll, play your rock and roll dances there, uh, but we've got to raise money for the building of the Bankstown Theatre. Uh, sorry, Bankstown Hospital. So we played there, I forget for how many years, not realising that it only was licensed for 800 and we had 2,000. We were also the centre of the local Saturday night brawls. Um, we discovered that there were pockets of kids uh, like Belmore would decide they're going to fight Lakemba or Collaroy or whatever. And we, the Collaroy boys are coming over to fight the Bankstown boys. No fights in the back, you know, they or in the hall. And... Uh, as I say, they were good, clean fights. There were no knives. There was no. Uh, if anyone got knocked down, they were, that's the end of it, mate. You've had it. <laughs> you've got. You've lost. You've lost. Piss off home. <laughs> so stupid, isn't it? So um, um, we um, had this, and there we introduced Dick Richards, Les, a uh, lucky star. He's Les McPherson, lucky star. Um, a lot. Of, what's his name? Jade Hurley. Because uh, we used to go on tour for Lee Gordon, and our dancers were—we'd put in these other people on the night. But I remember we only charged musicians' rates. I mean, how stupid were we? <laughs> we only charged musicians' rates uh, for all of us, um, and the rest we gave to Bankstown Hospital, or we gave to Bill Mc John McCall, I should say. We don't quite know what happened to Bankstown. Maybe, <laughs> anyway, another story. So, um, because, and we were playing oh, all around the place and drawing massive crowds. We used to play lunchtime concerts at the Sydney Town Hall, lunchtime. They'd be riding up round George Street down the road. We'd play, uh, and we were just drawing without a hit, without anything. I remember Colin saying to Cole, 
if Lee Gordon really knows the entertainment business, he surely must know we're the hottest in town, you know. We're drawing much more than O'Keefe, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we were offered a job at uh, Paddington Police Boys Club by Sergeant, whatever his name is, quite notorious for throwing out those who, who were untidy or whatever. And, um, and I said, no, O'Keefe's there. And I said, no, we're not taking over at O'Keefe. It's a bad look. If you want to close the show down and open, reopen with us, we will, which he did. So he closed down the dance and opened up with Cold and the Joy Boys. Now, I know a couple of Johnny's musos, and I know one quite now, Keith, the bass player, who's an accountant and ex-CEO of um, Ikea, right? Lives up the coast, be to his house. We'll be seeing him in the next three or four, four weeks. And Keith was so pissed off, he used to send hoods around to start the fights. In our, in our, uh, in our dance at Paddington, right? Yeah. And uh, so, um, Sergeant, whatever his name is, um, job was to throw them out. Now he's a big cop with a big gut, and he used to grab these kids by the neck and literally had to, they had to form a passageway. Kids had to, while he threw them out along the floor, out the front. Anyway, so um, um, I, I said to Colin, "Look, if Lee Gordon knows what's going on." I mean, we're drawing all these kids. And I was at, we were putting down, oh yeah, uh, oh yeah, aha. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, at the base down dance came Ken Taylor, the notorious A&R manager uh, for Festival Records. Now they didn't have, I don't, from memory, any artists at all. There was only Johnny O'Keefe on, uh, on uh, EMI and Slim Dusty on EMI. Um, so up comes the big deal of, um, um, of Ken Taylor. And he said, oh, we'd like you boys to come to the audition. He had the ear of a bloody gnat, you know. So he didn't know, wouldn't know ABC, so to speak, in music. C chord, C G. Anyway, so... Um, we um, we go there and um, we didn't have any music. We didn't write songs. A guy called John Burles was on TGB or TUW, I forget. And a couple of, we were even doing, um, I don't know why, record bar and store appearances. Not selling our records, we had none. But um, signing autographs and so on. Um, John Burles, a radio guy, who was a music guy, said, uh, we'd like to, um, would you like to, he said, I've got a lot of songs uh, from people send me songs from everywhere. He said, why don't you come in one Sunday morning and go through a few, which we did. And uh, I got to rig Burles because he writes for a local paper now and I've got to rig him because we owe him, we, you know. Um, he never gets a word. Nobody gives him a word. Uh, no one knows, I suppose. Anyway, um, we came across a song called Bye Bye Baby by a country, uh, it was a demo. Uh, another one called Oh Yeah, Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, that was about all. There was a third one that we selected, which we never did. I don't think we ever recorded it. Um, you promised me love that would never die. That promise you made was only a lie. Was you promised me. Love, talk, 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 you know, like, <laughs> talk, 
Anyway, so um, we went into festival records and uh, after that thing, put out Bye Bye Baby, Colin had a cold. Um, it was a room, uh, I would say, about, uh, there was no studio really, because they didn't record anybody. We had a one-track machine um, and um, we couldn't put, put a piano in there. Um, we couldn't put drums in there. It was like a little room. Yeah. So, and the echo chamber was in the ladies' toilet, uh, which was a speaker where the music was fed in one side, the speaker took it up with the echo uh, to pump it back, you know. And uh, so Robin, Robin, uh, Rob, 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 uh, what was his name, the engineer, Sinclair. Uh, anyway, he... Um, said, oh, look, we can't get a piano in. He said, I've got this Celeste. I said, being a rock and roll, I said, what's a Celeste? <laughs> he said, a little piano there, you know. And I said, wait a minute, we can't play. Okay, click, click, click. We can't play rhythm on that. We're a rhythm band, right? He said, well, you just have to fill in something. Anyway, so we play bye 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 baby could all I could think of da 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 I later later realised that's from wedding of the painted doll I think right da 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 no it's a different one da 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 it's very close isn't it yeah yeah da 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 it's not quite the same. No, it's, it's a variation. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so that's how that came out. Collinson sniffing in the middle of it with a cold, and and they said, "Oh, we're going to release it." We said, "Well, we can't release that." Colin sniffing. I'm playing some silly bloody riff that on I, a little piano. On a little piano, <laughs> and the drummer's tapping on his side because you can't get a full kit of drums in there. And anyway, they released it, and it went to number one for 26 weeks. It was on the really? charts. Yes. yes. And um, we're in, by the, the and we were there doing another one, Rock and Roll Clementine. Ken Taylor, the god of music, uh, said, I've written this song. And he came into the studio and said, because we're rehearsing in uh, this bloody room called studio. He said, now listen to this, boys. In the cavern, in the tavern, excavate. We said, that's bloody Clementine. He said, oh yes, but you've got to do it a rock. He said, listen to these lyrics. She drove the Duke down, the, she drove the Jeep down to the Duke joint every evening just at nine. Rock and roll and strut and stroll and blah, blah, blah. And we all burst out laughing. And the drummer said, Bogey, John Bogey said, uh, Ken, Look, I'll have toast. I'll have cheese and tomato. When you, who else wants Ken to get the sandwiches, right? Which upset him no end, and he pissed. He got horrified because we because we said he was bogey. Indicated that oh, go get the sandwiches for us for lunch. Anyway, so we decided well we have to make it some sort of a rock and roll to do it. So we did it what we thought sort of um, a, a rolling rock, you know. In a cabin, excavated for a mine, you know. Uh, but it was, we thought it was bloody horrible. Anyway, it went to number one. And uh, 
was number one for weeks, you know. Um, but prior to that, whilst we were there talking about that, I got a call from Lee Gordon. I remember to this day, he said, hey, Kevin Jacobson, yeah. He said, are you religious? And I said, no, not particularly. Why? What's that? And he said, well, it's Easter. And he said, um, he said, I've got this show with Johnny Cash, um, The Playmates. Um, uh, Gene Vincent. Gene Vincent. Uh, Robin Rocks in the Treetops all night long. Uh, Robin and the Roll and anything in this song. Oh, rock and Robin. Um, first time we saw black guys really boof. Good, you know, black American performers. Anyway, so I said, yeah, okay. Um, he, he said, can we see you? When I went down there, I remember, and Max Moore, who was the general manager there at the time, Max applied, Max went to see Lee Gordon as a, tra a, 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 a typewriter salesman. And he impressed him so much, Lee Gordon took him on and said, get rid of that job, I'll employ you. And that's how Max, what Max knew about show business, right? Bugger all. Anyway, so um, I remember him saying, well, how much do you want? And I didn't have a clue. I said, well, I don't know, what do I know? I mean, really, I'm a bloody rock and roll player. Being an accountant doesn't mean you're, you're good at wheelie dealy or whatever so to speak you know what I mean you have to learn that along the track yes <coughs> anyway. you might be good with, with numbers but yeah. there's, a, there's another yes. uh, sixth sense isn't yeah. there that's required yeah, yeah. yeah. as well uh, as a good gut I, yeah <laughs> so um, so we did this tour and um, whilst we are in Melbourne I got a telegram from Bob Rogers saying congratulations bye bye baby number one first Australian hit historically blah 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 so uh, we went on stage like, uh, and, oh, we went on stage to open the show, came off, and Lee Gordon came around and said, you boys will have to go on again. We've had the number one record. As we say, yeah, okay, we'll go on. Why? Gene Vincent hasn't arrived. Now this poor bugger Gene Vincent got off the plane, coming from Hendersonville, was it, or Nashville, wherever he was, off the plane, Sydney, Melbourne, had a broken leg. I remember him walking down the aisle of um, Festival Hall, Melbourne, and getting up on stage straight away like that, and said, "What do you guys know?" And we said, "We know all your songs." And he said, "Do you know? Um, oh, the road is rocky and the road be rocky long." Uh, yeah, and it was in E. I remember. Yeah, we know that in E. He said, "Jesus, man." The trip's worth it already. <laughs> anyway, he had his leg out here because I left his leg out because it was in plaster. I remember him getting down like this, you know, and um, one of the boys unpacked his guitar and, um, well, Keith, my brother, unpacked his guitar because Keith played bass. And um, um, away we went. Bebop a little and so on. And... Uh, one thing that I can't understand, I can't comprehend at this stage, Goldman was in the... I've got to check this out. I remember standing, urinating, alongside Johnny Cash in a pub in Goldman. You know, where you, the men's, men's 
toilets with just a long bloody trough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we sang in this pub, and it was in Goulburn. And I said, I've got to check that out because I said, I can't believe I'm standing next to Tommy K. Having a pee. <laughs> Having a pee, right? <laughs> anyway, so we did the tour. We found we discovered that Johnny Cash was a little uh, spooky, so to speak. He was uh, spiritual, he, spiritual, yeah, spiritual, yeah. not yeah. spiritual. And uh, uh, as the Joy Boys, John Bogey in particular was uh, quite a brilliant mind, but quite warped, you know. So we get to New Zealand. And bear in mind, in those days there were pubs. I don't think there were even motels. We're staying in this. We get to New Zealand. We check in. And um, because he thought uh, Johnny Cash was a bit uh, spiritual or whatever, I suppose he was he was sober by then, was he? Or yes, yeah, yeah. I suppose so. We didn't know. We'd never yeah. heard of drugs or anything. Right, right, right. Yeah, so he was reformed. Uh, and anyway, so but in the room was a wardrobe, your bed, a wardrobe, uh, you know those old bloody light wardrobes, and a dressing table. So, Bogey. And Norm da and um, um, uh, Dave Bridge at the time, we found out his door, his room number, and um, we all lined up to get our keys to go to the room. And when he got into his room, there was nothing in there. It was bare. They'd moved all the furniture out. So he went down to the Johnny Cash went down to the general manager and said, "I think I've got the wrong room." No, sir, no, no. He said, there's nothing in the room. And they said, yes, there is. Anyway, the general manager came up and there was all the furniture there, right? So the general manager, the general manager called Lee Gordon. He said, I think there's something wrong with Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing silly buggers on him. Yeah, yeah. but also uh, bogey, you know, those outdoor... Um, it's fire escapes that go down the side of the building. Yeah. The old-fashioned. Yeah. yeah. Right? Bogey would run, al run along at night with a torch underneath his chin and his underpants over his head, right? And make these weird sounds. And Johnny Cash would jump out of bed, run down and complain that the place is haunted. Right? <laughs> I mean, poor... I mean... It's, <laughs> That's been never been told. There you go. It's a, it's a <laughs> what, what happens on two estates? <laughs> yeah, what happens on two estates? Yeah. Anyway, so um, so then number one, um, Rock and Roll and Clementine went to number one. Then we had Oh Yeah, uh -huh, which is the other one we got from Bertie. Did um, you ever ever have a go at writing stuff yourself? No, never thought of it. Right. Because, I mean, Elvis didn't, so why yeah. should we? <laughs> you know fair what I mean? <laughs> in other days, so in those days, there were writers and the writers' publishers. I mean, there was no publisher for Oh Yeah, Aha. Uh -huh. We couldn't even find the writer. And this is how dumb we were. I went to a guy called Jack Argent of Leeds Music and I said, excuse me, Mr Argent, we're going to record this song. Would you mind publishing it? We didn't even know what bloody publishing was. And uh, so we gave him this hit song that's probably earned him bloody millions, you know. Um, so we were pretty dumb. Anyway, so, um, no, we, um, it's, um, anyway, so we went on from there. and That was quite successful until I said to Colin, look, um, oh, and I used to do the advance work with two 
Queensland, for instance, and we'd hire our own train. Max came up with the idea, why don't we hire our own train? I said, oh, yeah, great, Max. How can you hire a train? Anyway, he did the deal. We had a train. We had a day carriage. Um, um, we had a night carriage. And we had a um, gear, with all our gear. By those day, in those days, as I mentioned earlier, we've, our speaker boxes were about bloody six foot high and needed two guys to lift them on and off or whatever. When you think that thing we've got at home about, you know, little square things pump out such sound today. Anyway, so um, so we'd travel in our own train, and uh, but we'd still check into uh, book hotels and uh, motels in that when we got to that stage. Um, whether as to whether anyone in the band or we'd had a couple of roadies then wanted to stay in a hotel but sometimes the train would leave at two o'clock there was no in the morning uh, in accordance with the queensland <laughs> railway schedules right so um uh, most of it was spent in the train but we had really good bugs we had special uh, special, what do you call it, mattresses and uh, and so on. And the day carriage we had lit up like a bloody nightclub with flashing lights and all that stuff. Or night, and we called it the day carriage, but it was... Yeah, we would hang out. Uh, we hang out. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we did that for many, many years, Queensland in particular. But we toured everywhere. Kalgoorlie, as far as Kalgoorlie, we toured everywhere. I'd say the most toured and uh, sold out everywhere. So we toured extensively, extensively, too much actually. I think we should have emphasised more on reflection, more on um, uh, recording um, than, um, than, than, than live appearances. Um, I mean, we ended up a really good band in live appearances. Um, by the way, when you talk about Lee Gordon, um, and I, people that are in the business say, what happened to Lee Gordon? And he committed suicide, he did what happened to him. The fact is, or the facts are, Max said, Lee Gordon's in trouble for the tax department, and they're after him. He said they're actually, what do you call him, stalking him. He's up in surface paradise. And he needs money to get an airport. Can you believe the famous Lee Gordon? I mean, um, I get, I, and he said that Lee's got this um, venue. Uh, he said for Colin the boys, if you could, Max, who was very loyal to Lee Gordon, even though he became my work with me for twenty years. Um, after Lee Gordon went into some rehab breakdown or whatever, um, so I go to. Uh, I said, well, I'll have to look at the venue. So I go to Coolangatta Airport, Lee Gordon arrives in a bloody American, you know, the big fin, the open, typical American showbiz stuff, right? And he said, let's have lunch. And it was the first time that I've ever had prawn and mango salad. I thought, wow, you know. <laughs> posh. So, eh? Posh. Yeah, yeah, posh. And... Um, he said, uh, can I show you the venue? And we go to the venue and it's a garage, but it's an old time garage where you took your car to get fixed. 
no petrol station or anything. So inside the garage was earth hardened by oil and, you know, cars, stuff, and, uh, and it was just an open uh, garage, like, uh, I should say, more than double doors, because very wide at the frontage. And in the corner was an aviary, so to speak, where there was two white rabbits. What do you call those borkor, corkors, those big, nice, beautiful, big birds? Macaws. Macaws, something like one of those. And um, other birds, colourful birds, beautiful aviary. So I said to Lee Gordon, Lee, we can't play here. So there's no way in the world I would Cole, allow Cole Joy to play here. And Max said, look, I know, I, he said, I'm very loyal, you know, to you, Kevin. He said, but Lee's really in trouble. He said, and they've caught up with him here. And I said, well, okay, I'll get the Joy Boys. We'll have the Joy Boys. I said, but we can't have this place as it is. He's got to do something about it. And the Joy Boys come up. And rackety old bloody place next to it. This is uh, Caveat Street, Cable Avenue, Main Street, at those days. I think it's the Main Street. And um, anyway, Lee Gordon had, uh, when we were ready to play there, Lee Gordon had sawdust on the floor, which would be illegal today. Tables and chairs, round tables and chairs. Both sides covered with pine trees, like Christmas trees, whatever they call Right, and it looked okay. And I said, but what about the Avery? Oh, we'll cover it up. And I said, well, you know, we're playing rock and roll. Oh no, that'd be right, we'll cover it up. Now the poor guy that owned the place had cancer of the throat. He used to walk around like this with this gadget up to his throat and he'd talk like this and I um, couldn't quite understand what he was saying. I said, ah. So we opened up first night and the first thing for the Joy Boys was, I think it's Shazam, goes dong, dong, da-dong, dong, 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 da-da, screaming guitar, dong, dong, da-dong, dong, 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 see, screaming guitar, screaming guitar. Two rabbits keeled over, dead. The mawk-caw-caws or whatever he's going, quack, quack, quack. The birds are fluttering everywhere and there's noise and bloody, I mean, it was, a right, and a couple of Canaries were dead on the ground, white canaries, and it was and the guys running around saying, "Stop, stop, stop!" with his thing up in his throat, and uh, and the joy boys once they're away, you can't stop them, you know, dong, 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 the dong, dong, and this bloody riot went on while the birds were dying, the rabbits were dead, the court course was screaming out like crazy, and the guys running around with the thing up in his throat saying, "Stop, stop, stop," and. Uh, so when the gig was over and the uh, turmoil was sort of settled, <laughs> um, the guy ordered Lee Gordon and all of us off the premises because we killed his Avery that he's had, his famous birds that he's had for years and his two beautiful white rabbits and, and so on. So Lee Gordon somehow compensated him or whatever and we continued there. And Lee Gordon used to visit us and each day, Max would give him the takings. We did it for nothing. And um, 
so, and I remember, which is shameful, of pity, seeing him in the corner. And I said to Max, hey Max, there's some weird old girl. I sit in the corner. I said, that's the worst. She got to wear a blonde wig. That's the worst wig I've ever seen. And he said, that's, that's Lee. So here he was, the famous Lee Good, sitting in the corner. Uh, but the cops, the cops had come, the police, they'd say, you seen Mr. Gordon? John Bay would say, hey, do you know about, have you heard of Shazam? He said, uh, or uh, Ruck, uh, what's the other one? Da dong, da dong, 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 da dong, dong. Famous guitar playing, dong, dong. Cop, Bogey had said not the cops, right? Talking about, um, come in, come in, and we'll give you. He said, <laughs> they sort of thought <laughs> this mob of rock and roll, they, you know, they did. Anyway, so that was all. It was quite an experience. Lee Gordon escaped. We gave him all the money. Went to London and died. And I still don't think it could have been. Somebody said overdose of heroin. Others have said um, committed suicide and whatever. But and I don't know. Lee Gordon laid the foundation in the world in a way. I mean, I understand he came from USA. Um, and we're not quite sure whether he was run out of town for some reason. And he worked for a company called Royal Art Furnishing. He approached them and got their, their turnover and said, if I double this turnover for you and you agree to spend so much on advertising and marketing, I want so much percentage of that. And they went through the roof, he succeeded. So he was a great promoter. And he laid the foundation of promoting even though Alan Heffernan later said to me, who was his account and then partner, she said, when I look back, we were nothing compared to what you do today. But that's changing of times, you know. Yeah. I mean... Technology develops. Yeah, yeah, and, you uh, know. Uh, Alan, venues change. Yeah, Alan couldn't believe that I'd pay... I mean, Barbara Streisand, we had to come up with 14 million up front before she left. He just couldn't believe those figures because in those days... The Everly Brothers and Johnny Cash's and all that, they got like five grand a week or ten grand a week. Nothing to do with the capacities or the ticket prices. And I guess sometimes it would arrive on just a handshake. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, as Frank Sinatra did. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, um, and it was, so it was a different era of, uh, it you all the time, of course, um, where you could afford to, they could afford to stack uh, quite a few big shows they called the big shows um, with artists on weekly salaries disregarding and as I mentioned earlier I remember a safe which would have been like a couple of metres high in his office or a metre and a half high um, stacked with notes and um, punching the money in all cash because there was no computerised ticketing no credit everything was cash and they just slammed the door on the notes, you know. So if we were smart in those days, of course, well, we could have had all the cash in the world. If, if When he said how much, I said, well, I don't really know. <laughs> he thought, Max said to me, I thought, is this dumb bastard the manager of called you and the Joy Boys? He tells me that. He told me that. He thought at the time, <laughs> this poor dumb bastard the manager of called you and the Joy Boys? <laughs> 
There is always someone of great interest to be heard and celebrated on the Stages podcast. A variety of roles and lifetimes are explored. Look back through the archives and you'll get access to directors, designers and drag performers, producers, publicists and playwrights, agents and actors, choreographers and casting, emerging talents and established legends. All available to access on Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Thank you to my guest today, Mr Kevin Jacobson. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.